This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, February 22, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. What conflicts exist between liberalism and Islam, and can they be reconciled? Mustafa Akiol is author of Islam Without Extremes, A Muslim Case for Liberty. We spoke last week. For a lot of people who consider themselves fundamentalist Christians, people who uh, go to the text of the Bible first, and most especially the words in red, those are the words of Jesus. uh, You know, you you get a pretty clear picture of how one ought to conduct themselves in the world, and it is in many ways very out of step with how people do conduct themselves, uh, even people who are self-professed Christians. There is an idea floating around that any time Islam has something of a reformation, uh, that going back to the core of the faith is actually a negative thing, that it promotes uh, more radical ideas and potentially more violence. So what do you say to that? Well, that's a very good question, first of all. Uh, Secondly, this idea of going back to the source, especially the scripture, Uh, which has been influential in Christianity is, of course, influential in Islam, it is not necessarily a bad thing. It can be a bad thing. I mean, if you're, it depends on why are you going back to the scripture, the source. If you have an intention, uh, if you have, if you have an idea like that, the religion has become too dilute and too moderate and liberal. We should go back to toughen up. I mean, that's one approach. Then you know you can go there and find some texts to you know, justify some strong positions you have. That is the trend we see in the trend uh, called Salafism in Islam. Maybe that term is you know, heard or unheard. It's a pub- Salafis, I would call them the ultra-Orthodox of Islam. Like if Sunni Islam is a major spectrum, Salafis are the most rigid, more, most hardcore a wing, wing in the Sunni Islamic spectrum. And they say uh, the word Salaf comes from the first few pious generations of Islam. So they would go back to early generations and they would say we should dress like them so they are known with a specific, specific dress code. They would wear, wear a turban or you know wear short trousers saying what Prophet Muhammad did. So they want to go back to basically to live in the seventh century and to reject what it, whatever is modern. So that is not a good way of going back. However, other Muslims go back to the source to actually find values, a source of inspiration there to move forward to a more liberal, to a more modern interpretation of the faith. I consider myself from, you know, from that uh, perspective uh, because when you go back to the Quran, you can find certain chapters that actually can be used for advancing a liberal worldview. There is no compulsion in religion, a very famous verse, you know, declares in the Quran. And a lot of liberal-minded Muslims have gone there and said, well, the Quran says there should be no compulsion in religion, despite the fact that we have a lot of compulsion in Iran, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, you know, the the so-called Islamic states of today. Uh, uh, Therefore, when people say, let's go back to the source, it's not necessarily a bad thing. But their presumptions and what they're looking for might be imp- important. So in like a lot of religious texts, you would argue that the Quran then is a bit of a prism. Uh, that is, you can look into it and 
find what you want to find. Exactly. Uh, I mean, you can't find everything you want to find, but if you have a disposition towards, let's say, conflict, there are chapters in the Quran about wars between Prophet Muhammad and his early Muslim followers and the pagans of the time. So those verses define a war context, and Muslims are called to be steadfast in battle and fight for God. So if you're interested in any conflict in the world, and you, if you want to s- something to amplify yourself in that conflict as good Muslims, you can go and quote those chapters. Uh, whereas I would tell that, well, those chapters, not chapters, just a few passages actually in the Quran, I will say those passages just tell us a historical incident. There was a war between Prophet Muhammad and, and, and his supporters and you know the pagans of Mecca. Because Muslims were attacked, they had to defend themselves. So th- this, this verse, this passage is telling us something that happened in history. Like many Christians or Jews would today see certain passages in the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua, for example. There are some passages about war. I would rather go back to Quran and focus on the verses that, to me, not describe a particular incident, but a broader principle of the faith. Uh, the truth is from your Lord. Let anyone who wants to believe it, believe it. Let anyone who wants to disbelieve it, disbelieve it. That is from the Quran. I just quoted a verse. So I would take that and say, well, this may be a universal principle rather than a conflict that happened in a particular incident, which is also in the Quran. For people who... I guess, are concerned about what they see as uh, creeping uh, Islamism around the world. Uh, some m- most stridently describe or point to in the United States here, they point to Europe. And they say this, this is a problem, the way uh, these uh, a lot of neighborhoods have grown up with a, a great deal of Muslims moving into specific areas, and they describe uh, negative experiences and negative consequences that go along with that. What do you say to them? No, I would grant that there is a social problem with some Muslim communities in Europe, but I would urge anyone who looks at this issue to see the social dynamics behind it and not just the imagined theological basis for it. Uh, Muslims in the U.S. and Europe are quite different, actually, when you, because I've been to both speaking to European Muslims and American Muslims. And when I come to America, I see, uh, when I speak to Muslim audiences in America, I, I hang out with Muslim friends here. I see people that are generally a part of America. They're proud to be American, American hyphenated with something like American, Arab, Pakistani, Muslim, Turk. And they, they're middle class. Most of them are well-educated. They are a part of mainstream life in the U.S. When you go to Europe, however, you see um, ghettoized communities because the society is not very open to integrate people from different cultures and values. Like you can see that in France, for example. In France, there's a big banlieue culture, you know, like just you would call suburb here, but not in a very positive sense. So there are like ghettoized communities, Muslim communities, North African, and they cannot be French because being French is very strictly defined. So it's not a hyphenated identity culture. So they feel outcasts. They feel some maybe uh, racism against them. And also they began not as educated middle class people. They began as 
the sons of uh, immigrants who were manual laborers and who didn't have the same socioeconomic status. So the problem of uh, failing to integrate Muslim communities in Europe, and again, uh, it would be wrong to generalize. There are very well-integrated Muslims too, but there are problems. That has something to do with the economic situation there, with the with the with that culture is whether it's open to re- religious freedom is it di- diversity and so on and so forth like for example french secularism is generally not very appreciated by most of the conservative muslims when you come to us they don't have a problem with the separation of church and state here because it's not hostile to religion it is rather respectful to religion in europe uh, also when um People, uh, often Muslims, emigrate from one country to another in Europe. They're restricted in terms of what they can do for work, if they can work at all within a year, sometimes sometimes longer. And that, that might have an impact on uh, how well that they can in- integrate into a society. Indeed, they're restricted. Also, some Muslims uh, benefit from the welfare state, but in a bad way, in the sense that uh, certain European countries, you know, give you just unemployment salary, uh, and that doesn't encourage you to go work and you know have a job. That just encourages you to go there and just use that and you know make more kids and maybe you know take more money because of those. So there's a kind of a, a laziness culture which is sometimes being created by the welfare system, uh, whereas I think. America and Canada, too, I think are good examples of integrating uh, immigrants. Like, you respect their traditional identity, but you give them a new citizenship, and you say you're American, but you can be proud of your heritage. But you have to work. You should get jobs. And and you encourage for them. And I think that's a a better model of integration. Therefore, all issues about Muslims, in other words, are not related to the doctrine or the theology of Islam. That certainly plays a role in many cases. But it's, it is also important in, in what kind of a context they are, in what kind of a social setting and a political system and economic model they are. We are now less than a month into the presidency of Donald Trump. He has uh, executed a number of executive orders. Uh, the one that's most notable, really, is the uh, travel ban on people who come from uh, seven countries on Earth. How do you evaluate the the impact that that has on both just the perception of of Muslims in the United States and the perception of the United States among Muslims? Uh, I mean, I have respect to America's laws and regulations, but I personally felt a little bit offended by that so-called Muslim ban. Yes, it was not universally for Muslims. It, it was for seven nations. And I'm not from one of those nations. I'm from Turkey. But still, it raises a question like, next time you go out of the U.S. and come back, will there be a question? Maybe will your country be included in that list? So those questions came to people's mind. And uh, so that was, there was a little bit, you know, kind of worry that it brought to me, my wife, and my family. Moreover, I thought, well, what is the point? What's the reason, rationale behind this? I mean, if you are an ISIS commander that wants to organize a terrorist attack against the U.S., God forbid, you have a portfolio of passports <laughs> that is from Belgium, U.K., Russia, you know, like the groups, the terrorist groups we're talking about, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, are not coming from specific nations. You know, they have militants all over the world. So it's probably not going to stop any real threat, I think, to the United States. 
Uh, and it's a 90-day uh, valid ban. Nothing's going to change in 90 days in the situation of those countries. So I, let me be clear here. I understand Americans being concerned about terrorism. It's a, ter- it's a concern for every country. My country, Turkey, has been hit by terrorists of ISIS or PKK, which is a total different, you know, Marxist-Leninist, Kurdish separatist group. So we have the right to be warned about security. But the measures we bring in to secure our security should be really carefully evaluated and should be really to the point rather than putting a blank, you know, uh, brush, like a big brush to all, all the issues. Like Turkey would be absolutely wrong if it, if it brought a regulation about Kurds, all Kurdish citizens, worrying about the PKK, which is a group that speaks out of Kurdish nationalism. So in that sense, I was not very happy with that particular ban, and I'm glad to see that rule of law has been effective, and judges have been able to stop that ban, saying that it violates constitutional uh, rights. Uh, And that was interesting for me as a political experience as well, because in other countries in the world, in many other countries, you can't imagine the president giving an executive order and a judge having the power to stop that. I mean, in Turkey, probably you can't imagine that right now. That judge itself uh, would be in trouble if if he or she tried to do something like that. That showed to me uh, what checks and balances are, why they are important, and why protecting rule of law, uh, sometimes from executives that are a little bit pushing on rule of law, is important. How does uh, Islam, as a faith tradition, how well does that mesh with sort of the American ideal, classical liberalism, uh, the government leaves you alone. People describe uh, Islam as totalitarian quite often. But what, what do you have to say about the, the, the meshing of the traditions of classical liberalism and Islam? There are certain conflicts, I'll be honest, because traditional mainstream Sunni Islamic doctrine defines a state that is defined by Islam. So here's a state, a caliphate, an Islamic you know, state, which has laws that are derived from Islamic law. So that's the ideal. That's the ideal for if you look into the classical teachings. And there are, are there Muslims who want to you know, put those classical teachings into life? Yes. In, in, in the Muslim world, we call them the Islamists. They want to carry out Islam today as a political ideology. So there are Muslims who think like that. But also there are many Muslims, and I think they're the majority in maybe the majority of Muslim countries. They think, well, you know, life goes on. You know, we live in a different era. You know, societies are different. Now we live in secular states, and that's fine. As far as I can do my prayers, do my fasting in the holy month of Ramadan, and if I can go to mosque and, you know, I don't, I, 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 out of my own conviction, refrain from eating pork or, you know, drinking alcohol. I'm a good Muslim, so I don't need the state to be defined uh, in, the, in the same faith. And in the Islamic world, in the Islamic world, you can see these tendencies. Some will say, I just want to be, live as a good Muslim, and I just want a state that gives me that guarantee and security. They're very fine with that. I see many Muslims like that. Many Muslims living in the United States, I think, think like that. Uh, whereas some will say, no, we have a utopia, a political utopia. Our religion demands that. So they would want to have Islamic regimes or states. Uh, 
here, I think it would be wrong to deny that there's a political vision based on Islam, an authoritarian political vision, I should say, from our modern standards. And I think that's a problem, and I'm a, I'm a critic of that approach, which is mainstream in Saudi Arabia. You know, most Saudis think that's how a government should be. But when you come to Turkey, for example, you see many conservatives, Muslims in Turkey, fine with a secular state if it, if it allows their practices. If you go to Bosnia, another Muslim-majority country, secularism is accepted as the default position, and there are really any big arguments against that. And in the West, I think many Western Muslims, they appreciate the values, the, the freedom they find in, in a country like America, rather than trying to bring Sharia you know, to be imposed in America. Mustafa Akiol is author of Islam Without Extremes and most recently, The Islamic Jesus. Subscribe to and rate this podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.